If you're looking for the most epic place on earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Black Tech Green Money isn't just about telling the stories of successful black entrepreneurs. It's also about giving actionable and wealth-building strategies that help you protect the future of our communities. That's why we're pleased to be supported by State Farm Insurance. State Farm also believes that we must invest in our communities to achieve economic growth by sponsoring programs like the AXO, which rewards high school students for their academic achievements. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Afrotech 2019, Oakland, California. Charles Susson is managing partner at Precursor Ventures, and he and I are talking in an Afrotech lounge about investing at early stages. He drops some knowledge about startup geography. In essence, to find success as a startup, where do you need to be located? I think the landscape is changing a lot. One of the hardest questions I get asked is my investors say, well, how many of your companies are in Silicon Valley? And I go, well, it depends on what you mean. We have companies where the management team and the senior executives lives in Silicon Valley, but engineering's done in Russia, engineering's done in Denver, engineering's done in Mexico. Is that a Mexican company? Is that a Silicon Valley company? Is it an international company? We have a couple of fully remote companies. I don't know how to classify those. What I will say is, if you're a company that's looking for specialty talent like AI, ML, search, the Valley is a great place to be. If you're one of the most prominent companies in the world, the Valley is a great place to be. And if you really need to be close to capital, a Valley is a great place to be. Otherwise, there's many, many other places you can work. Right now at Precursor, about 25% of our portfolio companies are in New York City, which I think is the other hub where you can really build something amazing today. I'm Will Lucas, and this is Black Tech, Green Money. I'm going to introduce you to some of the biggest names, some of the brightest minds, and brilliant ideas. If you're black in building or simply using tech to secure your bag, this podcast is for you. Harold Hughes is founder and CEO at Bandwagon, an analytics company that uses data and proprietary blockchain technology to help teams and event organizers eliminate ticket fraud and increase fan engagement. I asked Harold about the idea that while there ain't a whole lot of black people in Silicon Valley, there's a ton of us working to build tech startups wherever we at. So if you're black and looking to build a tech company, 
Should you be looking to move to the Bay Area? I wouldn't think so. Uh, whenever I'm in Silicon Valley, I'm normally meeting up with Black entrepreneurs who came from somewhere else, right? And so I think that when you look at it that way, you know, Black founders may be tourists in Silicon Valley, but the places that we're building, the places that we're really taking the resources that we have and, and pushing them back into our community is outside of Silicon Valley. So I would definitely think that uh, there are a lot of other places for Black founders to be building. And I'm excited that, you know, we're seeing more of that today. So let, let's talk about that, because for startups building in communities that don't have huge you know, tech ecosystems, which are a lot of the places we come from, you know, not all of us are in Miami, not all of us are in Austin, not all of us are in Atlanta. How do we as black founders engage uh, those resources to be able to build our startups when we're we're not in those dense places for technology startups, particularly? Yeah, I think that it's really important to realize what resources and tools we have. Uh, I started my company in Greenville, South Carolina, and I could do the whole like, woe is me, there's no one here with money or um, the challenges that exist for black founders raising. But instead, I leaned into the resources that I had. I was fortunate to be able to have uh, access to Twitter. I was able to leverage my LinkedIn network from a social capital standpoint. And so I do think that, you know, while physical communities still look different than they do in some of these more capital intensive or even the talent ecosystems and hubs that we see in Austin in the Valley. I do think that the internet has allowed more of us to be connected and sharing of resources. And so today, if you're a black entrepreneur, I would encourage you to think about how you can build your team wherever you find that talent and how you can get capital wherever that investor is. And I think the smart investors will recognize, well, it makes more sense for you to have a office in Detroit or St. Louis or another city than paying two and three and four times rent in Silicon Valley or Austin or New York City. So I do think that there's a, a new move and a new way for the black founders building. So when I really got into technology um, several years ago, it was people like Paul Graham who were the people who disseminated, you know, technological education. Right. And and as you know, and as many people know, at least more today than they did eight years ago, the way Silicon Valley does investing is not the way investing is done in South Carolina. And it's not right. the way investing is done in Detroit. However, most of the education we've gotten has come out of Silicon Valley. And so how do black startups and black investors, because black investors have to be trained in how to invest in technology also. How sure. do, how, where do we go to get the best investment advice in how to invest in black startups? Because, you know, I, I can imagine that we would get dissuade, dissuaded by investing in black startups when you, the failure rate is incredible, no matter whether you're investing in a black startup or a white startup. But how do you first get that education and, you know, build that risk appetite that you're going to lose a little bit before you might find that win unless you find it super early? Yeah, I think that these days you lose and learn a lot faster. And I say lose and learn as in lose money and learn faster. Uh, we think about the changes that have happened with equity crowdfunding. You can be a person who says, I want to start investing in early stage startups and go on a platform like Republic and be able to see the financials, the vision, the product roadmap, the team of a company. You see the cap, you see all these different things. You could decide, is this company worth $100, $1,000 of my hard-earned money. And I think that the democratization and access of um, those types of deals for investors is a great learning and on-ramp point. So I'll definitely start there and saying that some of the best education that I've had, whether it's my you know traditional education, my college, or in this startup world and what I'm doing now, it's been when I put my money 
out there and committed it to the process. But then on top of it, I do think that there is a huge, I guess we'd call it a gap in the willingness to learn and the comfort in being uh, vulnerable. And I think that it's really important for us as black people to make sure that we're okay saying that we don't know something and we're okay with the person willing to treat, you know, teach us. And I think the challenge there is, you know, that you got to figure out the pride side of it. Uh, I'm really, really comfortable telling people what I don't know. And that helps people want to help me. Some people aren't really interested in that. And that makes it a little bit harder for people to want to help them. And so I think that from a knowledge standpoint, everyone who wants to learn this stuff is able to in these ways, but we've got to find out where the resources are. I think that uh, equity crowdfunding platforms have found a way to allow people to learn, uh, making smaller, smaller and smaller bets these days. But also, you know, I tell everyone, if you haven't read venture deals and you're planning to either raise money or write a check, you should read it. Uh, I think it's a great start. I think Jason Calacanis has a good book uh, called Angel. It's on angel investing. So those are two there. But even to that point, and it's something that I've been thinking about a lot, is that there's this concept where the rules that those guys are writing about aren't really easy for us to apply. Uh, and so I think it's really one of the things where on top of those great resources I've kind of pointed out, we do also have to have conversations with other people who are a step ahead of us on how we get there. And those of us who have made that, you know, you know, modicum of success have to be willing to share how we got there with other people to help them also get there and find their way. So, so that was from the investor perspective, from the startup perspective, you told, you had a blog post where you talked about, um, you had 141 no's before you got an investor who, who said yes. And yeah. I wonder, you know, not being in a place like Silicon Valley, not being in a dense startup ecosystem, particularly a startup capital ecosystem, how come you didn't, you know, bend to the way of say, you know what, maybe I'm in the wrong place geographically. Maybe I need to move. But instead, you did something else. Like, number one, how did you not get into that, you know, thinking pitfall? But number two, like, what did you do to in order to, to get to 142 and not give up? Yeah, the, for me, the biggest thing was understanding, you know, what I was trying to build. And part of my journey was letting people know you can build wherever you are with what you have. And so, yes, it probably would have been easier to just pick up and go to one of these uh, more dense cities. And that would have probably changed uh, the impact or at least the trajectory in the early rounds. But I think that there's a lot of people who are still in that situation, wherever they are, and they don't have the mobility. And I think it's unfortunate for the one playbook to be, well, if you just leave that situation, then you can have better success. I think that um, I'm incredibly privileged. I've got several college degrees, uh, married to a great and supportive partner uh, that has helped provide for our household. So we're able to take some risks that a lot of folks don't have those types of uh, privileges and benefits. I acknowledge that. And I think that when you are in a position of privilege and you have that amount of power and that uh, opportunity, it is your responsibility to make sure that you try the harder way so that other people can see how they can do it. And, it, and that's where I think one of the biggest things is, and, and to your point, the keeping going uh, was really just understanding that I knew what we were doing. I just knew that it was a numbers game. That this is just math. And I know that everyone, every you know, great company we hear of today, lots of people have said no to, lots of people thought it wouldn't work. And I think that that's part of the nuance um, in startup is that uh, it may seem obvious once you get going, but it's harder to seem obvious in the beginning. And that 
uh, when you're making an investment as an investor, oftentimes you don't have a bunch of revenue or a bunch of customers to evaluate. You're betting on the grit of that founder, uh, their passion, how dogged they're going to be about trying to solve this problem and the market and seeing the direction of it. And so I think that as an investor, you can look at those things. But for me as a founder, I was really just understanding that this is a numbers game that knows are part of the process and I can learn on how to iterate uh, my story to better prepare myself for that opportunity when it came. How do we level the playing field for all entrepreneurs? 55% of white businesses survive the startup phase, while only 4% of black businesses do the same. So I want every black entrepreneur to know about the 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative. The 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative is an award-winning program created by Shopify and Operation Hope. They're on a mission to start, grow, and scale 1 million black businesses by 2030, driving wealth creation for the black community. Out of 6 million employer-owned businesses in the U.S., only 2.3% have black ownership. This program gives black entrepreneurs tools and resources to level the playing field, from free business coaching to tailored training and extended free Shopify trial. Shopify's made a 10-year, multi-million dollar commitment to the program, and it's working. The initiative already started, supported, and engaged with over 334,000 black businesses, helping them operate businesses that sell anything from skateboards to coffee beans to apparel. Business owners love this program. Simone Harvin, founder of SC Creative Group, says, The 1 million black businesses experience for me was unlike any other program I've been a part of, primarily because it was for us and it was by us. Here at Drink Champs, we are always interacting with our listeners, many being black entrepreneurs. Shopify is one of those platforms that empowers and emboldens entrepreneurship. So chart your own path for business success with the 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative and Shopify. Bring your business to Shopify with an exclusive offer at shopify.com slash B-E-N, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash B-E-N. State Farm Insurance gets it. Representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. State Farm understands and wants to help protect our communities by investing in our future, building off the hard work our parents have done before us. We all are looking to create generational wealth so that our families and generations behind us have a better starting point than we did. That begins with financial literacy. State Farm helps fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth. To date, participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarships offers as a direct result of contributions from State Farm. At Eating Wallbrook, we hear inspiring rags-to-riches stories on each episode from our guests, but with State Farm, you can begin to write your own success story. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If you're looking for the most epic place on earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. You know, but then sometimes it's the wrong founder matched to the wrong idea. Sometimes no, it's, sure. it's, it's the bad, a, a bad, you know, growth trajectory so far. Sometimes it is other things. And I wonder your perspective on like startup validation and how you, how to do this, because you've been um, 
in, you've been enrolled and graduated from or come through certain programs like, and I have a list here, like Founder Institute Greenville, um, Capital Factory, uh, um, inaugur- you were the, one of the inaugural companies in Google for Startups, Black Founders Exchange, uh, IBM's Blockchain Accelerator, and um, so many. And I wonder, because there are so many black startups who apply to these programs and don't get in. And right. like, what have you found is like, one of the reasons, one of the biggest reasons why people don't get it, is it because they have bad ideas or what is it? So I'll talk a little bit on what you started with is, is founder market fit, which is something I don't think most people talk about. Everyone talks about product market fit and it's not that you have revenue, it's that you've got predictable revenue, you know how to get more of it. Founder market fit is, are you the right person to be solving this problem? And I do think that oftentimes black founders get pitched in, uh, pigeonholed into this section where it's like, well, we want you to solve black problems. We don't want you solving like <laughs> uh, universal problems. And I think that's part of the challenge is that, you know, naturally we as people want to solve our own problems. And if our problems as black people have been ignored by many, many groups, then we say, well, dang, if they're not solving it, we got to solve it for ourselves. Marry that with the adoptions of Shark Tank and all these other new um, com- um, TV shows and, and programming and TechCrunch and all these things that glorify entrepreneurship. You've got Black people who have seen their problems be ignored. So they start out to s- solve it for themselves. And then now they're trying to figure out how they can turn this into a big business because they've got the entrepreneurial bug. And the challenge is that sometimes that pro- you know solution to my problem that helps me isn't scalable to an entire market when you're talking to a person across the table that doesn't understand the market dynamics or doesn't understand how this goes from being just for black folks to everyone. And so I think when we're talking about the types of businesses, you know, I know that there was a, a great sentiment last year. I think it was um, Tiffany Bell um, from um, the water company. And I really think about how she talked about, you know, hire and wire. Like we need we need less mentorship. I think yeah. Monique talked about that. We're over mentored and underfunded. underfunded. Yeah. But I think that the thing is, is that there is still a mentoring gap. Like, please don't stop mentoring us. And and I say that to to not just you know non-black people, but to black people, continue to mentor because there is a gap, and we do have to acknowledge that that gap exists and that we need to find ways to to fill it up. So I think that when you look at some of these you know programs, you know again I was I was hella surprised I got into the Google for Starters program back in 2016. Um, but it's really interesting to see like, yeah, we were building out a, a, a company that was gonna work for everybody. And I think that when you talk about, well, we're gonna build a black version of X, and it's like, well, well, what happens when X just decides to do a better job of catering to the community? Yeah, yeah. And that's where I see some of the challenges that exist in some of these uh, ideas. So, so is it that you don't get excited when you see we're building the black version of this thing? Or what, oh, what, yeah, what goes through your mind? I definitely. Oh, I definitely don't get excited about that because I think that it's too easy to knock off. So what happens if there's a second black person that comes in and says, well, we're building the black version of this. Uh, I think at one point there was, um, there were two different types of Airbnbs. Yeah. Uh, there was two different versions of like black Airbnb. And I remember both of them were out at the same time. And I'm just like, there's a black right, Uber so version. There was a black th- version of that. Yeah. There was a black version for Uber and this and that. And I was just like, all right, y'all. So if the, if the differentiator is just that, it's just not enough. Uh, especially if you're looking at it from an investor standpoint, it's like, that's not enough. And because, I mean, and this may be more controversial, is that I don't know that the consumer, the average Black consumer, is willing to change their spending habits and their decision making to solely buy Black from some of these products and services. So they may buy it when they can, or they may buy it prioritizing certain things like, 
I believe black, you know, as black people, we love black barbershops. Yeah. yeah like, yeah. I don't think that that's going to be disrupted, <laughs> in, you know, in some major way. But I think that the same reason you don't see that there's not a black Twitter. Black Twitter likes being as part of entire Twitter. And we just have our community and we rock and we roll and we do our thing. And so I think that when you try and segment it down into these, these groups, I think it's harder for everyone else to get involved because at that point it's just like, well, how do you differentiate yourself and how does this scale? And that's the thing I think is a big challenge for any of these businesses and whether you're targeting any particular group, just you've got to figure that out. Now, in the case of like take Facebook, for example, they were saying, we're going to just target college students. And that was what they went in at. And they said, okay. And I think that, you know, we're going to target college students at Harvard. That's where we started. But then we're going to rinse and repeat this for these other groups for a company to start off saying, we're going to focus on, uh, Airbnb for, for but for black people, we you would need to be able to articulate this is just the beachhead product. This is just the entry point. From there, we're going to be able to rinse, repeat, and apply this across other groups and other sectors. And I think that's really where the differentiator is when it comes to starting out that niche. I, I love that. I love that. And when we talked about, you know, founder market fit, let's talk about product market fit for a second. Sure. And how important, um, because we think about sales often, we think about user acquisition, but I want to talk about community. Um, how right. important is building community to a startup success? I think it's huge. I think if you had the opportunity to have community or distribution or a great product, uh, it may be a really tough decision to decide between community and distribution. Uh, I don't think product is the number one thing you choose for. Uh, if you add in, you know, funding or community, I think it's a tough decision uh, because when it comes to community, and we're not talking about followers, followers is not the same as community. When you've got community, it's bi-directional. You've got mm -hmm. engagement. It's multi-directional. They're connecting with each other. And I think that the value of community that we're seeing across all these different types of platforms that are popping up now and really sustaining is the fact that, you can bring community everywhere. I'm a big sports fan. They always say, you know, defense travels. If you're a good defensive team, defense travels. When it comes to community, community travels. And you, if you build up a trusted brand, and that's the thing I love about product market fit when you think about it, oftentimes founders will go in and say, oh, we've got these seven revenue models or these seven revenue streams. And we've got all these different ways we can make money. And I, I want to encourage them to say, start with one thing. Start with the one thing that people are willing to pay you for and really understand who that group is that's going to pay you. And once you figure out who that group is and you build brand equity and trust with them, learn more about the things that are adjacent to the product or service you're already delivering, and then see if that group of people will trust your brand to deliver that set of things. And so that's where you talk about the value of community. Once you define product market fit and achieve that, that allows you to continue to expand. And you're seeing uh, several different organizations that are doing that across um, business sector right now. So let's talk about how to build community because you're doing Clubhouse, a lot of really, really great things on Clubhouse right now, which is, I don't know if you want to call it a tactic or just a channel, um, but talk mm -hmm. about how founders, what are some of the other channels or tactics uh, founders can use to build community around their particular vertical? Yeah, I think that when it comes to the channels, I think, you know, Clubhouse is a channel, Twitter is a channel, but I think that having bi-directional opportunities for engagement is has got to be the biggest one. Um, and I'm not talking about like, oh, I'm going to post something on LinkedIn and people will comment. I think it's really reaching out and hosting conversations, uh, allowing your customers and, part and, and, and community members to truly feel like they are part of the product. One of the things I do love about Clubhouse is how much Paul and Rohan, the founders, are willing to be on the platform and talk to people. 
Uh, you don't see that with Zuckerberg. You don't see that with uh, Twitter or all these other folks. And that there's a reason, like they built it in their way and that way. But now you're seeing this is that I think that the closer you can put your product, yourself to your product, to your community, uh, the better you're going to be not only in getting user feedback and being able to iterate faster, uh, but also be by being able to build a little bit of brand loyalty in that those community members are going to feel like they contributed to the building of the product. I remember when we first started our company, uh, one of the first things I did was tell everyone on Facebook, hey, I'm building this company. I still have my day job, but I'm building this company on the side. And this is why our goal is, and this is what we're trying to solve. And it did two things that were really important. Number one is that it personally held me accountable to many people. So anytime someone would run into me, if they knew nothing else, I'd say, hey, how's that uh, ticketing thing you're working on? And I was like, oh, well, you know, I, it, would, it would feel awful if I was like, oh, man, I, I stopped doing that. Now I'm doing this other thing. So I wanted to make sure it's like, okay, I'm going to have people hold me accountable. But the more important thing, I, the more important reason I did it was, was to create a sense of community around learning. So what ended up happening was a week or two later, someone would say, hey, Harold, it sent me an email. Did you see this note about StubHub? They're doing this thing. And someone else said, hey, do you say this thing about uh, Ticketmaster? They're announcing this. And that happens all the time. And every time I get one, I say, no, I didn't see it. Thanks so much for sending it to me. Yeah. Even if I've received it five times that day, because I want that person to know that the mental capacity that they leveraged and used to reach out to me, thinking about me in this massive space relative to these billion dollar companies was useful. And so when we, you know, we're putting out a release for a new product next week, we're thanking some of our customers who've been really helpful in development. I think that creating community allows you to do a lot of that stuff a lot better. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something we care deeply about here at Black Tech Green Money. State Farm Insurance also cares about the growth of black communities. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help provide financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. We want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. It also requires active sponsorship of programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, along with funding programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to educational achievement of black and brown youth that has awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers to date. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If you're looking for the most epic place on earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. 
We'll even give you a hundred dollar credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. We will talk about the pivot in a second of that bandwagon took, and you actually just changed the handle, which I, which, which you, I'm, I would love if you just kind of go in on that in your response to yeah. this, because you know you took a little guidance from Google and Alphabet, which I would, so yeah. add a little bit, sprinkle that into this answer. Um, but talk about building SaaS, community around SaaS, because now instead of you know what you were doing previously with, around ticketing direct to consumer in a way. Um, now you're helping businesses in that data collection. So talk about how you build community around SaaS, sales as a service. How do you do that? Yeah, so in the beginning when we started our company, we really cared a lot about live event experience. As a person who grew up in the South, in Columbia, South Carolina, uh, I understand how segregated the country is on Sunday mornings from race to religion to socioeconomic status to geography. Uh, but then I know what a melting pot it looks like on a Saturday afternoon at a tailgate or at a sporting event at a Clemson game or on a Sunday afternoon at a baseball game. You've got a high school dropout handshaking and high-fiving with the PhD and every type of walk of life gathering around those affinity groups. And so we love the idea of bringing fans to live events. Uh, live events, because we knew that would get people outside and mixing up and, and really engaging with other folks. And so our thought was, if we can help create better experiences for fans, then they'll come out, you know, better than what you'll get at home. And so as we were building in the beginning, that was really important. As we learned a little bit more about the market, we realized, man, this is a not great margins. It's a bloodbath and competitive. We should actually go try and solve this other part of the ecosystem. That was from learning and listening to customers. And so when we pivoted to being a B2B SaaS company, software as a service company, our, our strategy was really that, well, no one really cares who bandwagon is. You care about who the Dallas Cowboys are or you care about who the Clemson Tigers were. And so if we could equip those types of brands and organizations with the tools they needed to deliver high quality products and services for their fans, then that's all the better. Uh, I liken it to some of these commercials you've seen um, lately with AWS showing you like, oh, we help you get your Domino's pizza. We help you book your trip on Airbnb. And they're all behind the scenes. The average person doesn't know or care that it's an AWS server. They just know they needed a Domino's pizza delivered in 20 minutes. And so that's really what we decided to build. And so when we looked at what Alphabet did and um, restructuring and saying, well, we're not going to be Google anymore. We're going to be Alphabet and Alphabet's going to be a suite of products. Uh, we looked at that and said, bandwagon, that's our direction. So instead of us putting bandwagon big and bold in front of everything, as you noted, we changed our social media handle. Everything is at built by bandwagon. So as we built out our first product, Aura, Aura is built by bandwagon. Aura a fan identity and attendee analytics tool that helps live event organizers, sports teams, festivals, et cetera, better understand who their audience is on the day of the event so they can deliver products, services, and experiences that are curated. And that is it. And behind the scenes, it's built by Bandwagon. Our second product, after we acquired this company, Ideal Seat last year, is Ideal Seat. It's idealseat.com. You'll see a little logo down the bottom corner that says built by Bandwagon. Because I think the vision of what we're seeing here is that as long as we're touching all the different parts of that fan's experience, that we're going to be able to impact how they uh, go about their day and go about their life. And that is really huge for us. And if bandwagon can help build on that, that's going to be uh, the vision for us. And so we want to continue to build down that line. And we're excited about that. But I think that when you think about software, 
no one cares, right? Like no one cares. You just want to know what it does to make your life better. You don't know how it does it. You just want to know that it helps to make your life better. And that's something that when we talk to founders, you know, we do pitch practice weekly on Clubhouse and, you know, they want to get into the speeds and feeds and the details and the nuance. It's like, ma'am, sir, just tell us what it does for me. And that's something that we're super uh, excited about as we are positioning ourselves as a software company that cares about that. Um, over the last year or so, probably even longer, I've, I've recognized in your social media usage that you're talking more and more about data and the importance of data and helping us understand the value of our data. Angela Benton is also somebody who talks about yep. this a lot. Um, number one, so to help break down the actual value of consumer data. So if I'm a person who uses these things, I buy tickets, I tweet, I, you know, I buy a pair of jeans. There's a whole lot of things that go into that on the other side that gets pulled out. Right. And so talk about yep. the value of that. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. My wife and I watched, uh, I think it was like a documentary called The Social Dilemma on Netflix. And for those of us, I'm sure Angela saw it and had the same thoughts that I did. It was just like, yeah, duh, obviously, like this is what's happening. But for a lot of people, they had no idea that the ad that they see on Facebook and then they see that same ad on Instagram and then they see the same ad when they're on the Wall Street Journal, like they don't understand like how this is working and all of the different pieces that go into making that happen. And so for me, I think it's incredibly important to make sure that people understand, you know, the saying that if you aren't paying for the product, you are the product, right? If the product's free, you are the product and you means the data. And so the concept of that really is, and something we talk about even with our investor meetings and these different conversations today is that uh, gone are the days of you exchanging your email for Candy Crush points. Consumers <laughs> care a lot about their data, right? Yeah. And so, so much so that you've got uh, folks who are going to Costco. And instead of me saying, Harold Hughes is my name and my address, and my email, I'll say Harold Hughes Costco. And it's like, well, why would you put Costco in your name? Because when I go and get an e uh, a mailer or an email from Dick Sporting Goods, and it says, good morning, Harold Hughes Costco, I say, oh, Costco selling my data to Dick Sporting Goods hey. or whatever it is, right? And so you understand really clearly, well, wow, well, the Costco membership was only this much and I get all this value. Why would, how did Dick's get it? So, well, Dick's probably paid them for it and you wow. go on and do this whole thing. And so consumers are not only getting smarter trying to figure out how to track it, but also you see there's regulations with GDPR in Europe. You've got CCPA here, the California Consumer Privacy Act, which I personally believe will be one of the guideposts for federal regulations around how organizations manage consumer data. It's really important for consumers to understand that their data is being used in this way and for organizations to understand how to uh, best manage it. And so what Bandwagon is looking at and being positioning uh, ourselves to think through is how do we help these organizations be better stewards of customers' infodata, uh, customers' information and data? So we've seen, you know, Google misuse our information. We've seen um, Facebook flat out weaponize our data against us. And there's really opportunities for us to do a better job of saying, how much of my data do you actually need? And let me just give you that. And if you're gonna use it, tell me how you're gonna use it. And so long as you use it in the way that I asked you to, or gave it to you to use, I'm good with it. But the moment you do, I need to have revocable access to that. And I think that uh, the work that Angela Benton and her team are doing at Streamlytics uh, is really thinking about not only being aware that your data has value, but in her case, they're actually getting you paid for it. And so really that's the kind of thing that we see is the future of this is helping folks understand that they are valuable inherently and these brands uh, need to participate in uh, that value chain with that, with that fan or that customer. 
So so let's talk about the the unique value opportunity there may be for black technologists who want to build around data because so often we think about the surface level of what a, of what a product does but oftentimes it's just very creative ways to gathering that data. And so um, again, you talked about, you know, if I ask Alexa for such and such song, she's starting to understand more about me. Right. right. And um, so from a opportunity, from a market opportunity perspective, because this is happening, this is the world we live in. Where right. is the opportunities, particularly for black founders? What should we be thinking about when we're building companies and startups that positions us in the marketplace to be able to capitalize and do good for our communities in this way? Yeah, I think one of the biggest opportunities that we have, especially in the Black community, is figuring out places where data is not currently being gathered and actually leveraged. Uh, I'm Jamaican-American, and I can't tell you how many times I would go into my local Jamaican spot and say, hey, let me get a curry goat or something like that. And they'll say, oh, we're out of curry goat. It's just like, <laughs> how are you out of curry goat? It's one of six entrees on this, re- on this uh, menu. And I think about it, they're taking pen and paper here. Yeah, maybe now they got the square POS system, but they're not using data in their inventory. And so I'll look and say like, hey, how many curry goats did you sell last week? Oh, we sold all the curry goats we had. Well, how many was that? Was that more than the week before? What percentage of uh, of your orders was curry goat? And I think about those things where we're saying there are plenty of organizations and businesses in our community that do not necessarily do a great job of using data. And it's not normally that they're like afraid of it. They just don't know what to do with it. And so I think the opportunity for the technologists in the black communities to think through the low touch ways and easy ways to get in here to help the businesses in our communities to understand what you do with the data and how it can impact your business in a positive way. And that I think is where we have the opportunity to really not only help our community, but also generate significant dollars. So that is definitely, I think, one of the biggest things. If you think about on-ramping and, and no-code solutions, being able to help folks understand who aren't super techie, this is how this works in your business and it can impact your bottom line. Like That's the kind of thing I think we need more of uh, in our community. With almost every startup founder I've spoken to over the last year since COVID started specifically and the social uprisings, you know, post George Floyd and even was trickling before then. um, We've talked about how important this moment is for black founders. And um, by and large, I think every single one has said, you know, this is the most important moment of our lifetimes Mm -hmm. because there are number one, there are VCs who genuinely want to do good stuff who mm-hmm. maybe two years ago didn't realize that the issue was as big as it is. There are yeah. companies who want to partner with black founders and black companies who previously didn't realize that they should have gave us more shelf space on and on and on and on. And on. But that this moment, uh, this COVID moment, this social, uh, this social uprising moment is important. What would you say in that respect of how important is this particular moment that we're living in versus what may be different two years from now? Yeah, I mean, I think that regardless of what happened last year with Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, like, if it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense. Like, that is consistent every time. And the reason that that matters is, is that, yes, all that happened last year and all the things, you know, there are plenty of funds that got uh, significant uh, contributions. Google got cash, was able to distribute to 76 companies. We were one of those. And so that part is huge. But the other part of it is, is that Target didn't just all of a sudden start giving shelf space to these brands because it wanted to feel good. No, they realized like, oh, snap, 
if we put these brands in Target, we'll have more Black people coming to Target who are adding, you know, if, if you're if you're listening to this or watching this, like you go to Target, you end up buying stuff you don't need. <laughs> and like, all right, so we got more people coming in Target who weren't coming to Target. They're coming to buy these brands or they're sharing us online and then they're buying all this extra stuff. It made sense because it made dollars. And so when you're a business, especially when these startup founders and you're trying to figure out how you leverage uh, this pressure that's been building, make sure that your business goals align with the opportunity that these large corporations are trying to get out of you. Because at the end of the day, that's really what it comes down to is they are making a money decision and you need to understand that that money is to be had and you need to figure out where you fit into it. We had a company, uh, a fortune 50 company reach out to us last year and said, Hey, we'd love for you to partner with us. We've got this idea. We think you'd be the right partner. And I was like, you know, that sounds really interesting. Let's jump on a call. We did a call and I said, well, yeah, well, what's your budget? Well, we don't really have a budget right now, but like, we think we'll be able to put you on our podcast. We're going to feature you on a blog. We're going to get you some marketing funds. And I was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. but so if you want to get back to me, once you have a budget, then we can kind of move forward. And they'd say, hey, have you given us any, any more thought? And I said, yeah, I'm super excited. I just need a budget. And it never came. And so we never did it. And I think that that was a position I was able to take because I knew better. And we fortunately weren't in a position where we were like doing anything just for, you know, the tap and dance. But that's one of the things we need to make sure that our community knows is that if they're reaching out to you for this, they see a dollar sign too. And they want to make the dollar signs better, like, you know, good quality and doing stuff with community. Great. But it's got to be a business impact too. And so I think that it is important. I think this is one of the most important times you see, you know, funds having historic amounts of funds, you know, shout out to Collab Capital just yes. announced, you know, a massive million. fund, $50 million inaugural fund, right? And so you see all the different folks who are getting money and deploying it. The unique piece about Collab is they are black focused. They're, they're talking about black founders. It's not diverse founders. It's not people of color. It's not women. It is black founders. And they're looking at some of the communities where we exist, where Atlanta, Houston, St. Louis, Detroit. And so I think that is huge and the spotlight's on them too. And so I think not only is it important for the fund allocators to make sure that they're doing the work uh, because everyone's looking at them, but the same thing for the startup founders is that we've got to make sure we, we stand up and stand tall in this moment uh, when there's a lot of attention on us right now. Black Tech Green Money is a production of Blavity Afrotech on the Black Effect Podcast Network and iHeartMedia. And it's produced by Morgan DeBone and me, Will Lucas, with additional production support by Love Beach and Raven Airport. Special thank you to Michael Davis and Sakara Savanyan, you know, like the wine. Yes, that's his real name. Learn more about my guests and other tech disruptors and innovators at afrotech.com. Enjoying Black Tech Green Money? Head to iTunes or Google Podcasts and leave us five stars. Bonus points if you add some warm and fuzzy in the comments. I would appreciate it. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a thing when new episodes drop. Go get your money. Peace and love. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. 
If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. AT&T connects and old to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the driving to work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T.